0: Story fifteen of Christmas stories by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story fifteen Somebody's Luggage. Part three. Chapter three His Brown Paper Parcel. My works are well known. I am a young man in the art line. You have seen my works many a time, though it's fifty thousand to one if you have seen me you say you don't want to see me you say your interest is in my works and not in me don't be too sure about that stop a bit let us have it down in black and white at the first go-off so that there may be no unpleasantness or wrangling afterwards and this is looked over by a friend of mine a ticket-rider writer that is up to literature i am a young man in the art line in the fine art line you have seen my works over and over again and you have been curious about me and you think you have seen me now as a safe rule you never have seen me and you never do see me and you never will see me i think that's plainly put and it's what knocks me over if there's a blighted public character going i am the party it has been remarked by a certain, or an uncertain, philosopher, that the world knows nothing of its greatest men. He might have put it plainer if he had thrown his eye in my direction. He might have put it that while the world knows something of them that apparently go in and win, it knows nothing of them that really go in and don't win. There it is again, in another form, and that's what knocks me over.' not that it's only myself that suffers from injustice but that i am more alive to my own injuries than to any other man's being as i have mentioned in the fine art line and not the philanthropic line i openly admit it as to company in injury i have company enough who are you passing every day at your competitive excruciations the fortunate candidates whose heads and livers you have turned upside down for life not you you are really passing the crammers and coaches if your principle is right why don't you turn out to-morrow morning with the keys of your cities on velvet cushions your musicians playing and your flags flying and read addresses to the crammers and coaches on your bended knees beseeching them to come out and govern you THEN AGAIN, AS TO YOUR PUBLIC BUSINESS OF ALL SORTS, YOUR FINANCIAL STATEMENTS AND YOUR BUDGETS, THE PUBLIC KNOWS MUCH, TRULY, ABOUT THE REAL DOERS OF ALL THAT. YOUR NOBLES AND RIGHT HONORABLES ARE FIRST-RATE MEN. YES, AND SO IS A GOOSE A FIRST-RATE BIRD. BUT I'LL TELL YOU THIS ABOUT THE GOOSE. YOU'LL FIND HIS NATURAL FLAVOR DISAPPOINTING WITHOUT STUFFING. PERHAPS I AM SOURED BY NOT BEING POPULAR but suppose i am popular suppose my works never fail to attract suppose that whether they are exhibited by natural light or by artificial they inevitably draw the public then no doubt they are preserved in some collection no they are not they are not preserved in any collection copyright no nor yet copyright anyhow they must be somewhere wrong again for they are often nowhere "'Says you, at all events you are in a moody state of mind, my friend. My answer is, I have described myself as a public character with a blight upon him, which fully accounts for the curdling of the milk in that coconut. Those that are acquainted with London are aware of a locality on the Surrey side of the River Thames called the obelisk, or more generally the obstacle.' those that are not acquainted with london will also be aware of it now that i have named it my lodging is not far from that locality i am the young man of that easy disposition that i lie abed till it's absolutely necessary to get up and earn something and then i lie abed again till i have spent it it was on an occasion when i had had to turn to with a view to victuals that i found myself walking along the waterloo road one evening after dark accompanied by an acquaintance and fellow-lodger in the gas-fitting way of life he is very good company having worked at the theatres and indeed he has a theatrical turn himself and wishes to be brought out in the character of otello but whether on account of his regular work always blacking his face and hands more or less i cannot say tom he says what a mystery hangs over you yes mr click the rest of the house generally give him his name as being first front carpeted all over his own furniture and if not mahogany an out-and-out imitation yes mr click a mystery does hang over me "'Makes you low, you see, don't it?' says he, eyeing me sideways. "'Why, yes, Mr. Click, there are circumstances connected with it that have,' I yielded to a sigh, "'a lowering effect. "'Gives you a touch of the misanthrope, too, don't it?' says he. "'Well, I'll tell you what. "'If I was you, I'd shake it off.' "'If I was you, I would, Mr. Click. "'But if you was me, you wouldn't.' "'Ah,' says he, "'there's something in that.' When we had walked a little further, he took it up again by touching me on the chest. You see, Tom, it seems to me as if, in the words of the poet who wrote the domestic drama of The Stranger, you had a silent sorrow there. I have, Mr. Click. I hope, Tom, lowering his voice in a friendly way, it isn't coining or smashing. No, Mr. Click, don't be uneasy.' nor yet forge mr click checked himself and added counterfeiting anything for instance no mr click i am lawful in the art line fine art line but i can say no more ah under a species of star a kind of malignant spell a sort of a gloomy destiny a canker-worm pegging away at your vitals in secret as well as i make it out said mr click eyeing me with some admiration i told mr click that was about it if we came to particulars and i thought he appeared rather proud of me our conversation had brought us to a crowd of people the greater part struggling for a front place from which to see something on the pavement which proved to be various designs executed in coloured chalks on the pavement stones lighted by two candles stuck in mud sconces the subjects consisted of a fine, fresh salmon's head and shoulders, supposed to have been recently sent home from the fishmongers, a moonlit night at sea, in a circle, dead game, scroll-work, the head of a hermit engaged in devout contemplation, the head of a pointer smoking a pipe, and a cherubim, his flesh, creased as in infancy, going on a horizontal errand against the wind all these subjects appeared to me to be exquisitely done on his knees on one side of this gallery a shabby person of modest appearance who shivered dreadfully though it wasn't at all cold was engaged in blowing the chalk-dust off the moon toning the outline of the back of the hermit's head with a bit of leather and fattening the downstroke of a letter or two in the writing i have forgotten to mention that writing formed a part of the composition and that it also as it appeared to me was exquisitely done it ran as follows in fine round characters an honest man is the noblest work of god one two three four five six seven eight nine zero pound shillings pence employment in an office is humbly requested honor the queen hunger is a zero nine eight seven six five four three two one sharp thorn chip-chop cherry-chop falderall de ridoux astronomy and mathematics i do this to support my family murmurs of admiration at the exceeding beauty of this performance went about among the crowd the artist having finished his touching and having spoilt those places took his seat on the pavement with his knees crouched up very nigh his chin and halfpence began to rattle in a pity to see a man of that talent brought so low ain't it said one of the crowd to me what he might have done in the coach painting or house decorating said another man who took up the first speaker because i did not why he writes alone like the lord chancellor said another man better said another i know his writing he couldn't support his family this way then a woman noticed the natural fluffiness of the hermit's hair and another woman her friend mentioned of the salmon gills that you could almost see him gasp then an elderly country gentleman stepped forward and asked the modest man how he executed his work and the modest man took some scraps of brown paper with colours in em out of his pockets and showed them. Then a fair-complexioned donkey, with sandy hair and spectacles, asked if the hermit was a portrait, to which the modest man, casting a sorrowful glance upon it, replied that it was, to a certain extent, a recollection of his father. This caused a boy to yelp out, "'Is the pinter a-smokin the pipe, your mother?' Who was immediately shoved out of view by a sympathetic carpenter with his basket of tools at his back? At every fresh question or remark, the crowd leaned forward more eagerly and dropped the halfpence more freely, and the modest man gathered them up more meekly. At last, another elderly gentleman came to the front and gave the artist his card to come to his office to morrow and get some copying to do. The card was accompanied by sixpence, and the artist was profoundly grateful, and before he put the card in his hat, read it several times by the light of his candles, to fix the address well in his mind, in case he should lose it. The crowd was deeply interested by this last incident, and a man in the second row with a gruff voice growled to the artist, "'You've got a chance in life now, ain't you?' The artist answered, sniffing in a very low-spirited way, however, "'I'm thankful to hope so.' Upon which there was a general chorus of, "'You are all right,' and the halfpence slackened very decidedly. I felt myself pulled away by the arm, and Mr. Click and I stood alone in the corner of the next crossing. "'Why, Tom,' said Mr. Click, "'what a horrid expression of face you've got.' "'Have I?' says I. "'Have you?' says Mr. Click. "'Why, you looked as if you would have his blood.' "'Whose blood?' the artists the artists i repeated and i laughed frantically wildly gloomily incoherently disagreeably i am sensible that i did i know i did mr click stared at me in a scared sort of way but said nothing until we had walked a street's length he then stopped short and said with excitement on the part of his forefinger thomas i find it necessary to be plain with you i don't like the envious man i have identified the canker-worm that's pegging away at your vitals and it's envy thomas is it says i yes it is says he thomas beware of envy it is the green-eyed monster which never did and never will improve each shining hour but quite the reverse i dread the envious man thomas i confess that i am afraid of the envious man when he is so envious as you are whilst you contemplated the works of a gifted rival and whilst you heard that rival's praises and especially whilst you met his humble glance as he put that card away your countenance was so malevolent as to be terrific thomas i have heard of the envy of them that follows the fine art line but i never believed it could be what yours is i wish you well but i take my leave of you and if you should ever get into trouble through knifing or say garroting a brother artist as i believe you will don't call me to character thomas or i shall be forced to injure your case mr click parted from me with those words and we broke off our acquaintance I became enamoured. Her name was Henrietta. Contending with my easy disposition, I frequently got up to go after her. She also dwelt in the neighbourhood of the obstacle, and I did fondly hope that no other would interpose in the way of our union. To say that Henrietta was volatile is but to say that she was woman. To say that she was in the bonnet-trimming is feebly to express the taste which reigned predominant in her own she consented to walk with me let me do her the justice to say that she did so upon trial i am not said henrietta as yet prepared to regard you thomas in any other light than as a friend but as a friend i am willing to walk with you on the understanding that softer sentiments may flow we walked under the influence of henrietta's beguilements i now got out of bed daily I pursued my calling with an industry before unknown, and it cannot fail to have been observed at that period, by those most familiar with the streets of London, that there was a larger supply. But hold, the time is not yet come. One evening in October I was walking with Henrietta, enjoying the cool breezes wafted over Vauxhall Bridge. After several slow turns Henrietta gaped frequently, "'so inseparable from woman is the love of excitement,' and said, "'Let's go home by Grosvenor Place, Piccadilly, and Waterloo—localities, I may state, for the information of the stranger and the foreigner, well known in London, and the last a bridge.' "'No, not by Piccadilly, Henrietta,' said I. "'And why not Piccadilly, for goodness' sake?' said Henrietta. "'Could I tell her?' could i confess to the gloomy presentiment that overshadowed me could i make myself intelligible to her no i don't like piccadilly henrietta but i do said she it's dark now and the long rows of lamps in piccadilly after dark are beautiful i will go to piccadilly of course we went it was a pleasant night and there were numbers of people in the streets it was a brisk night but not too cold and not damp let me darkly observe it was the best of all nights for the purpose as we passed the garden wall of the royal palace going up grosvenor place henrietta murmured i wish i was a queen why so henrietta "'It would make you something,' said she, and crossed her two hands on my arm and turned away her head. Judging from this that the softer sentiments alluded to above had begun to flow, I adapted my conduct to that belief. Thus, happily, we passed on into the detested thoroughfare of Piccadilly. On the right of that thoroughfare is a row of trees, the railing of the green park, and a fine, broad, eligible piece of pavement.' "'Oh, my!' cried Henrietta presently. "'There's been an accident.' I looked to the left and said, "'Where, Henrietta?' "'Not there, stupid,' said she. "'Over by the park railings, where the crowd is. "'Oh, no, it's not an accident. "'It's something else to look at. "'What's them lights?' She referred to two lights twinkling low amongst the legs of the assemblage. Two candles on the pavement— oh do come along cried henrietta skipping across the road with me i hung back but in vain do let's look again designs upon the pavement centre compartment mount vesuvius going it in a circle supported by four oval compartments several representing a ship in heavy weather a shoulder of mutton attended by two cucumbers a golden harvest with distant cottage of proprietor and a knife and fork after nature above the centre compartment a bunch of grapes and over the whole a rainbow the whole as it appeared to me exquisitely done the person in attendance on these works of art was in all respects shabbiness excepted unlike the former personage his whole appearance and manner denoted briskness though threadbare he expressed to the crowd that poverty had not subdued his spirit or tinged with any sense of shame this honest effort to turn his talents to some account the writing which formed a part of his composition was conceived in a similarly cheerful tone it breathed the following sentiments the writer is poor but not despondent to a british one two three four five six seven eight nine zero public he pounds shillings pence appeals honour to our brave army and also zero nine eight seven six five four three two one to our gallant navy britain strike the a b c d e f g writer in common chalks would be grateful for any suitable employment home hurrah the whole of this writing appeared to me to be exquisitely done but this man in one respect like the last though seemingly hard at it with a great show of brown paper and rubbers was only really fattening the downstroke of a letter here and there or blowing the loose chalk off the rainbow or toning the outside edge of the shoulder of mutton though he did this with the greatest confidence he did it as it struck me in so ignorant a manner and so spoilt everything he touched that when he began upon the purple smoke from the chimney of the distant cottage of the proprietor of the golden harvest which smoke was beautifully soft i found myself saying aloud without considering of it let that alone will you Hello," said the man next to me in the crowd, jerking me roughly from him, with his elbow. "'Why didn't you send a telegram? If we had known you was coming, we'd have provided something better for you. You understand the man's work better than he does himself, don't you? Have you made your will? You're too clever to live long.' "'Don't be hard upon the gentleman, sir,' said the person in attendance on the works of art, with a twinkle in his eye as he looked at me. "'He may chance to be an artist himself.' if so sir he will have a fellow-feeling with me sir when i he adapted his action to his words as he went on and gave a smart slap of his hands between each touch working himself all the time about and about the composition when i lighten the bloom of my grapes shade off the orange in my rainbow dot the eye of my britons throw a yellow light into my cucumber, insinuate another morsel of fat into my shoulder of mutton dart another zigzag flash of lightning at my ship in distress he seemed to do this so neatly and was so nimble about it that the halfpence came flying in thanks generous public thanks said the professor you will stimulate me to further exertions my name will be found in the list of british painters yet "'I shall do better than this, with encouragement. I shall indeed.' "'You never can do better than that bunch of grapes,' said Henrietta. "'Oh, Thomas, them grapes!' "'Not better than that, lady? I hope for the time when I shall paint anything but your own bright eyes and lips equal to life.' "'Thomas, did you ever?' "'But it must take a long time, sir,' said Henrietta, blushing, to paint equal to that.' "'I was prentice to it, miss,' said the young man, smartly touching up the composition, Prentice to it in the caves of Spain and Portugal, ever so long and two year over.' There was a laugh from the crowd, and a new man who had worked himself in next me said, "'He's a smart chap too, ain't he?' "'And what a eye!' exclaimed Henrietta softly. "'Ah, he need have an eye,' said the man. "'Ah, he just need!' was murmured among the crowd." "'He couldn't come that here burning mountain without a uh, eye,' said the man. He had got himself accepted as an authority somehow, and everybody looked at his finger as it pointed out Vesuvius. To come that effect in a general illumination would require an eye, but to come it with two dips, why, it's enough to blind him.' That impostor pretending not to have heard what was said— now winked to any extent with both eyes at once, as if the strain upon his sight was too much, and threw back his long hair—it was very long—as if to cool his fevered brow. I was watching him doing it, when Henrietta suddenly whispered, "'Oh, Thomas, how horrid you look!' and pulled me out by the arm. Remembering Mr. Click's words, I was confused when I retorted, "'What do you mean by horrid?' oh gracious why you looked said henrietta as if you would have his blood i was going to answer so i would for twopence from his nose when i checked myself and remained silent we returned home in silence every step of the way the softer sentiments that had flowed ebbed twenty mile an hour Adapting my conduct to the ebbings as I had done to the flowing, I let my arm drop limp, so as she could scarcely keep hold of it, and I wished her such a cold good night at parting, that I keep within the bounds of truth, when I characterize it as a rasper. In the course of the next day I received the following document— "'Henrietta informs Thomas that my eyes are open to you. I must ever wish you well, but walking and us is separated by an unfarmable abyss. One so malignant to superiority—oh, that look at him! Can never, never conduct—Henrietta.'" P. S. TO THE ALTAR Yielding to the easiness of my disposition, I went to bed for a week after receiving this letter during the whole of such time london was bereft of the usual fruits of my labour when i resumed it i found that henrietta was married to the artist of piccadilly did i say to the artist what fell words were those expressive of what a galling hollowness of what a bitter mockery i i i am the artist i was the real artist of piccadilly i was the real artist of the waterloo road i am the only artist of all those pavement subjects which daily and nightly arouse your admiration i do em and i let em out the man you behold with the papers of chalks and the rubbers touching up the downstrokes of the writing and shading off the salmon the man you give the credit to the man you give the money to hires yes and i live to tell it hires those works of art of me, and brings nothing to em but the candles. Such is genius in a commercial country. I am not up to the shivering, I am not up to the liveliness, I am not up to the wanting employment in an office move. I am only up to originating and executing the work in consequence of which you never see me. You think you see me when you see somebody else, and that somebody else is a mere commercial character. The one seen by self and Mr. Click in the Waterloo Road can only write a single word, and that I taught him, and its multiplication, which you may see him execute upside down, because he can't do it the natural way.' the one seen by self and henrietta by the green park railings can just smear into existence the two ends of a rainbow with his cuff and a rubber if very hard put upon making a show but he could no more come the arch of the rainbow to save his life than he could come the moonlight fish volcano shipwreck mutton hermit or any of my most celebrated effects to conclude as i began if there's a blighted public character going i am the party and often as you have seen do see and will see my works it's fifty thousand to one if you'll ever see me unless when the candles are burnt down and the commercial character is gone you should happen to notice a neglected young man perseveringly rubbing out the last traces of the pictures so that nobody can renew the same that's me Chapter 4 His Wonderful End. It will have been, ere now, perceived that I sold the foregoing writings. From the fact of their being printed in these pages, the inference will, ere now, have been drawn by the reader, may I add, the gentle reader, that I sold them to one who never yet. Authors note. The remainder of this complimentary sentence editorially struck out. End note having parted with the writings on most satisfactory terms for in opening negotiations with the present journal was i not placing myself in the hands of one of whom it may be said in the words of another author's note the remainder of this complimentary sentence editorially struck out end note, i resumed my usual functions but i too soon discovered that peace of mind had fled from a brow which up to that time time had merely took the hair off leaving an unruffled expanse within it were superfluous to veil it the brow to which i allude is my own yes over that brow uneasiness gathered like the sable wing of the fabled bird as as no doubt will be easily identified by all right-minded individuals if not i am unable on the spur of the moment to enter into particulars of him the reflection that the writings must now inevitably get into print and that he might yet live and meet with them sat like the hag of night upon my jaded form the elasticity of my spirits departed fruitless was the bottle whether wine or medicine i had recourse to both and the effect of both upon my system was witheringly lowering in this state of depression into which i subsided when i first began to revolve what could i ever say if he the unknown was to appear in the coffee-room and demand reparation i one forenoon in this last november received a turn that appeared to be given me by the finger of fate and conscience hand in hand I was alone in the coffee-room, and had just poked the fire into a blaze, and was standing with my back to it, trying whether heat would penetrate with soothing influence to the voice within, when a young man in a cap of an intelligent countenance, though requiring his hair cut, stood before me. Mr. Christopher, the head-waiter? The same. The young man shook his hair out of his visions, which it impeded, took a packet from his breast, and, handing it over to me, said, with his eye, or did I dream, fixed with a lambent meaning on me, THE PROOFS. Although I had smelt my coat-tails singeing at the fire, I had not the power to withdraw them. The young man put the packet in my faltering grasp and repeated, LET ME DO HIM THE JUSTICE TO ADD WITH CIVILITY THE PROOFS A.Y.R with those words he departed a y r and you remember was that his meaning at your risk were the letters short for that reminder anticipate your retribution did they stand for that warning audacious youth repent but no for that, a o was happily wanting, and the vowel here was a a. I opened the packet and found that its contents were the foregoing writings printed just as the reader may I add the discerning reader peruses them. In vain was the reassuring whisper a y r all the year round, it could not cancel the proofs. Too appropriate, name the proofs of my having sold the writings. My wretchedness daily increased. I had not thought of the risk I ran and the defying publicity I put my head into until all was done and all was in print. Give up the money to be off the bargain and prevent the publication I could not. My family was down in the world christmas was coming on a brother in the hospital and a sister in the rheumatics could not be entirely neglected and it was not only inns in the family that had told on the resources of one unaided waitering outs were not wanting a brother out of a situation and another brother out of money to meet an acceptance and another brother out of his mind and another brother out at new york not the same Though it might appear so, had really and truly brought me to a stand till I could turn myself round. I got worse and worse in my meditations, constantly reflecting the proofs, and reflecting that when Christmas drew nearer and the proofs were published, there could be no safety from hour to hour but that he might confront me in the coffee room, and in the face of day and his country, demand his rights the impressive and unlooked-for catastrophe towards which i dimly pointed the reader shall i add the highly intellectual reader in my first remarks now rapidly approaches it was november still but the last echoes of the guy Foxes had long ceased to reverberate we was slack several joints under our average mark and wine of course proportionate so slack had we become at last that beds numbers twenty-six twenty-seven twenty-eight and thirty-one having took their six o'clock dinners and dozed over their respective pints had drove away in their respective hansoms for their respective night mail trains and left us empty i had took the evening paper to number six table which is warm and most to be preferred and lost in the all-absorbing topics of the day had dropped into a slumber i was recalled to consciousness by the well-known intimation waiter and replying sir found a gentleman standing at number four table the reader shall i add the observant reader will please to notice the locality of the gentleman at number four table he had one of the new-fangled uncollapsible bags in his hand which i am against for i don't see why you shouldn't collapse while you are about it as your father's collapsed before you and he said i want to dine waiter i shall sleep here tonight. very good sir what will you take for dinner sir soup bit of codfish oyster sauce and the joint thank you sir i rang the chambermaid's bell and mrs pratchett marched in according to custom demurely carrying a lighted flat candle before her as if she was one of a long public procession all the other members of which was invisible in the meanwhile the gentleman had gone up to the mantelpiece right in front of the fire and had laid his forehead against the mantelpiece which it is a low one and brought him into the attitude of leapfrog and had heaved a tremendous sigh his hair was long and lightish and when he laid his forehead against the mantelpiece his hair all fell in a dusty fluff together over his eyes and when he now turned round and lifted up his head again, it all fell in a dusty fluff, together over his ears. This gave him a wild appearance similar to a blasted heath. "'Oh, the chambermaid! Ah!' He was turning something in his mind. "'To be sure, yes, I won't go upstairs now, if you will take my bag. It will be enough for the present to know my number. Can you give me a 24B?' "'Oh, conscience, what a adder art thou?' Mrs. Pratchett allotted him the room and took his bag to it. He then went back before the fire and fell a-biting his nails. "'Waiter,' biting between the words, "'give me bite, pen and paper, and in five minutes, bite, let me have, if you please, bite, a bite, messenger.' Unmindful of his waning soup, he wrote and sent off six notes before he touched his dinner. Three were city, three West End. The city letters were to Cornhill, Ludgate Hill, and Farringdon Street. The West End letters were to Great Marlborough Street, New Burlington Street, and Piccadilly. Everybody was systematically denied at every one of the six places, and there was not a vestige of any answer. Our light porter whispered to me, when he came back with that report, "'All booksellers!' But before then he had cleared off his dinner and his bottle of wine. He now, marked the concurrence with the document formerly given in full, knocked a plate of biscuits off the table with his agitated elbow, but without breakage, and demanded boiling brandy and water. Now fully convinced that it was himself, i perspired with the utmost freedom when he became flushed with the heated stimulant referred to he again demanded pen and paper and passed the succeeding two hours in producing a manuscript which he put in the fire when completed he then went up to bed attended by mrs pratchett mrs pratchett who was aware of my emotions told me on coming down that she had noticed his eyes rolling into every corner of the passages and staircase as if in search of his luggage and that looking back as she shut the door of twenty four b she perceived him with his coat already thrown off immersing himself bodily under the bedstead like a chimney-sweep before the application of machinery the next day i forbear the horrors of that night was a very foggy day in our part of london insomuch that it was necessary to light the coffee-room gas we was still alone and no feverish words of mine can do justice to the fitfulness of his appearance as he sat at number four table increased by there being something wrong with the metre having again ordered his dinner he went out and was out for the best part of two hours inquiring on his return whether any of the answers had arrived, and receiving an unqualified negative, his instant call was for melligatani, the cayenne pepper, and orange brandy. Feeling that the mortal struggle was now at hand, I also felt that I must be equal to him, and with that view resolved that whatever he took I would take, behind my partition but keeping my eye on him over the curtain i therefore operated on melligatani cayenne pepper and orange brandy and at a later period of the day when he again said orange brandy i said so too in a lower tone to george my second lieutenant my first was absent on leave who acts between me and the bar throughout that awful day he walked about the coffee-room continually often he came close up to my partition and then his eyes rolled within too evidently in search of any signs of his luggage half-past six came and i laid his cloth he ordered a bottle of old brown i likewise ordered a bottle of old brown he drank his i drank mine as nearly as my duties would permit glass for glass against his. He topped with coffee and a small glass. I topped with coffee and a small glass. He dozed. I dozed. At last, waiter—and he ordered his bill. The moment was now at hand when we two must be locked in the deadly grapple. Swift as the arrow from the bow, I had formed my resolution. In other words, I had hammered it out between nine and nine it was that i would be the first to open up the subject with a full acknowledgment and would offer any gradual settlement within my power he paid his bill doing what was right by attendance with his eyes rolling about him to the last for any tokens of his luggage one only time our gaze then met with the lustrous fixedness i believe i am correct in imputing that character to it of the well-known basilisk the decisive moment had arrived with a tolerable steady hand though with humility i laid the proofs before him gracious heavens he cries out leaping up and catching hold of his hair what's this print sir i replied in a calming voice and bending forward i humbly acknowledge to being the unfortunate cause of it but i hope sir that when you have heard the circumstances explained and the innocence of my intentions to my amazement i was stopped short by his catching me in both his arms and pressing me to his breastbone where i must confess to my face and particularly nose having undergone some temporary vexation from his wearing his coat buttoned high up and his buttons being uncommon hard <laughs> he cries releasing me with a wild laugh and grasping my hand what is your name my benefactor my name sir i was crumpled and puzzled to make him out is christopher and i hope sir that as such when you've heard my ex in print he exclaimed again dashing the proofs over and over as if he was bathing in them in print oh christopher philanthropist nothing can recompense you but what sum of money would be acceptable to you i had drawn a step back from him or i should have suffered from his buttons again sir i assure you i have been already well paid and no no christopher don't talk like that what sum of money would be acceptable to you christopher would you find twenty pounds acceptable christopher however great my surprise i naturally found words to say sir i am not aware that the man was ever yet born without more than the average amount of water on the brain as would not find twenty pounds acceptable but extremely obliged to you sir i'm sure "'for he had tumbled it out of his purse "'and crammed it in my hand in two bank-notes, "'but I could wish to know, sir, if not intruding, "'how I have merited this liberality. "'Know, then, my Christopher,' he says, "'that from boyhood's hour I have unremittingly "'and unavailingly endeavoured to get into print. "'Know, Christopher, that all the booksellers alive, "'and several dead, have refused to put me into print.' know christopher that i have written unprinted reams but they shall be read to you my friend and brother you sometimes have a holiday seeing the great danger i was in i had the presence of mind to answer never to make it more final i added never not from the cradle to the grave well says he thinking no more about that and chuckling at his proofs again but i am in print the first flight of ambition emanating from my father's lowly cot is realized at length the golden bough he was getting on struck by the magic hand has emitted a complete and perfect sound when did this happen my christopher which happened sir this he held it out at arm's length to admire it this per rent. When I had given him my detailed account of it, he grasped me by the hand and said, Dear Christopher, it should be gratifying to you to know that you are an instrument in the hands of destiny, because you are. A passing something of a melancholy cast put it into my head, to shake it and to say, Perhaps we all are i don't mean that he answered i don't take that wide range i confine myself to the special case observe me well my christopher hopeless of getting rid through any effort of my own of any of the manuscripts among my luggage all of which send them where i would were always coming back to me it is now some seven years since i left that luggage here on the desperate chance either that the too too faithful manuscript would come back to me no more or that someone less accursed than i might give them to the world you follow me my christopher pretty well sir i followed him so far as to judge that he had a weak head and that the orange the boiling and old brown combined was beginning to tell the old brown being heady is best adapted to seasonal cases years elapsed and those compositions slumbered in dust at length destiny choosing her agent from all mankind sent you here christopher and lo the casket was burst asunder and the giant was free he made hay of his hair after he said this and he stood a-tiptoe but he reminded himself in a state of excitement we must sit up all night my christopher i must correct these proofs for the press fill all the inkstands and bring me several new pens he smeared himself and he smeared the proofs the night through to that degree that when saul gave him warning to depart in a four-wheeler few could have said which was them and which was him and which was blotts his last instruction was that i should instantly run and take his corrections to the office of the present journal i did so they most likely will not appear in print for i noticed a message being brought round from buford printing house while i was a-throwing this concluding statement on paper that the old resources of that establishment was unable to make out what they meant upon which a certain gentleman, in company as I will not more particularly name, but of whom it will be sufficient to remark, standing on the broad basis of a wave-girt aisle, that whether we regard him in the light of, author's note, the remainder of this complimentary parenthesis editorially struck out, end note, laughed, and put the corrections in the fire.' editor's note mr dickens partly contributed to another of the chapters entitled his umbrella but for this the reader is referred to the number as republished in a collected volume the nine christmas numbers of all the year round end, note. end of story fifteen part three